So again, footnote one on the second page, that's the text that we're going to look at again today, and then I've, I've got some ramblings that I've written down, and we'll look at those. So this is an incredible uh, passage here in Scripture, and you'll note how God does all the verbs. So again, I'm on the second page, footnote one. This is Ephesians 1, verses 3 to 14. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And notice, he's the one who has blessed us. How? In Christ. Again, the distinction last week, not in ourselves, but in Christ. With every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as, and notice who's doing the verb again, God. He chose us in him, that's Jesus, before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. That's Jesus. Now verse 7. In him we have redemption. That means in Jesus we have redemption. How? Through his blood shed on the cross. And that, that gives us the forgiveness of our sins or trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Which he, God the Father, lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will. The mystery of his will, brothers and sisters, is this right here. This is it, right here. This is what God's been working for from before the creation of the world. This right here. This has always been plan A. It's never been plan B. And if you're, I want to just say one more thing about this. God is a God who gives. He constantly gives. So in creation, he gives. In redemption, he gives. In sanctification, he gives. He's always giving. God always lives outside of himself, if I can talk like that. He doesn't live for himself. He lives for you and me and all of his creation. And this is the mystery of his will. Now, the reason I say that is because we live in a culture in America which, generally speaking, thinks of our relationship to God in this way. Not God coming and giving us the gifts, but rather the direction's always this way. Us doing this for him. Now, I'm not poo-pooing this totally, that we're doing things for him, but you've got to get the first movement correct. So if I can on the, on the marker board... The essence of Christianity, and as Paul says, the mystery of God's will, is that God, outside of himself, he comes to us and then gives his son Jesus Christ for our salvation. Now, of course, the arrow will go up. As Anytime you're given a gift, you're going to say what? Thank you. Prayer, praise, and thanksgiving. So there is that aspect of the Christian life. But keep it straight. Which one comes first and which one's primary? It's this. So the mystery of God's will. Who would have ever thought that God, the second person of the Trinity, would take on flesh, bear the sin of the world, and atone for it with his blood? I'm going to say one more thing since I'm on a roll here. Because if you lived in the, uh, in the first century when the early church got started and when Jesus walked the earth, everybody was greeted. What I mean by that is this. I'll mention a name. Alexander the Great. Remember him? 4th century B.C., conquered the entire world, the known world at that time, the Mediterranean world, from Egypt all the way to where? 
India. He got as far as India. Well, he eventually dies, and his kingdom is split into four parts, and then we finally eventually get to the Roman Empire. But here's my point. Alexander the Great was a Greek. He was from Greece, Macedonia at the time. And he wanted the entire world at that time to be Greek. That is to be, everybody had to think like a Greek, speak like a Greek, you name it, which included your religion. And so how did Greeks think about God? Let me be brief here. I'll try to be. Greeks thought about God in this way. He's way up there. He's stuck and he never moves. So as one Greek philosopher said, God is the unmoved mover. Unmoved is very important, that adjective. God never moves. He never leaves his place up there. But he got everything started, thus the mover. But he's unmoved. He never moves. He's constantly up there. Never. He, in other words, for the Greeks, God only thinks about himself, only looks at himself, and only talks to himself. He never dirties himself or concerns himself with stuff that goes on down here because that's above God. He's above it. That's what I'm trying to say. He's above all that. Okay? That's how Greeks thought about God. So God can't get involved in creation, etc., or with creatures. Then uh, you've got the Old Testament prophets, and then you've got uh, the New Testament apostles and Jesus himself who preach that God took on flesh, that God actually entered time, took on flesh. He moved, if you will. You picking up what I'm throwing down? He didn't stay stuck way up there, but he actually came down among his creatures and creation and took on flesh, and then what else? Took on the sin of the world. Behold the Lamb of God, as the memory work for the kids this, this quarter in Lent. He actually took on the sin of the world and he atoned for it by shedding his own blood and dying. Now that just revolutionizes the world. And so this is the mystery of his will. When Paul preaches that this is the mystery of God's will, everybody's going, wow, I never thought of that. Because I always thought about God stuck up there, doesn't concern himself with us down here. And believe me, a lot of us still think that way. We're still very greeted. When we think of God, we think of God up there only looking down. We need to think differently. God is very involved with his creation, as we've observed. Okay? Intimately. And most intimately with his son, Jesus Christ. Okay? Any questions about that? Okay, so let's keep going. Let's see, what verse was that? That was verse 5. Uh, we did 7, right? Yep, okay. Now verse 8, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth, da-da-da, in Christ. Verse 10, as a plan for the fullness of time. Remember Paul in Galatians 4, 4 says, at just the right time, God sent forth his son born of a woman born under the law to redeem those under the law. Same thing. So as a plan for the fullness of time. In other words, when Jesus Christ came, was born, suffered, died, and rose from the dead, this is the climax of history. All history was moving towards that. Okay? To unite all things in him, namely in Jesus, things in heaven and things on earth. In him, namely Jesus, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. 
The, world, the world's just not serendipitous. Everything works according to whose will? God's will. By the way, I, Robin, would you be so kind? Uh, would you give me like a five-minute warning before 10 o'clock, please? I can. Yeah, thank you. Uh, my watch is still in California, and they're deciding whether it's still under warranty or not. So, you know, I'm lost without my watch in any event. Thanks, honey. So we've been predestined, verse 12, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him, in Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Now again, heard the gospel. That's how they became believers. Remember Romans 10? We studied that not too long ago. How does faith in Jesus Christ come about? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. That is to say, through the preaching of Christ. So if your Bible translation of Romans 10, 17 is this, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God, that's not accurate. It's this, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. It's the preaching of Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended, that people are converted. That's very important. So the ears, they're the most passive organ on your body. They do nothing but receive. They're simply given to all the sound waves enter your ears. The ears just receive, which is a perfect illustration of faith. So faith comes by hearing. And for ears to hear, there has to be a preacher preaching the gospel. Let's continue. And you believed in him and you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Who is, that's the spirit, is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. This is Paul's way of saying, like he says to the Corinthians, we live now by faith and not by sight. Right? Now, go to the, uh, I don't know, like I don't have the pages numbered, but go to where it says some ramblings. Find that. Some ramblings on what I just read here from, first, uh, from Ephesians 1. <clears throat> and it really is. It's just ramblings. But this chapter is very important. Why? Because if you've ever wondered about your salvation... Am I really saved? Well, if you look at yourself, the answer could be, well, yeah, because, you know, I quit smoking and my cholesterol's down and my blood pressure is low and I don't drink too much. And I'm certainly like that, not like that guy over there behind Jill May. Right? Now, that's an arrogant SOB, and, 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 and that's not going to end well. As Kuhlman likes to say, if you think like that, that's going to be hellacious. So if you think your certainty of salvation is based upon you and what you do, you're going to be in for a big surprise. Um, people who honestly know the scriptures, when they're asked, are you saved? They'll say yes. And if somebody asks them, how do you know that? The answer is what? Because of Jesus. He died for me and he rose for me. And now we're learning here in Ephesians 1 that God chose you in Christ before the foundation of the world. Now that's certain and sure. That's unshakable. Now you'll notice again, what is objective and what is certain? In you, no. In Christ, yes. See the difference? All right, so these ramblings, I'm gonna just do this for fun. So as we noted last week, we noted that the Apostle Paul, when he wrote his letter to the Ephesians, he was on ice in prison. <laughs> and there wasn't much Paul could do in prison except read, write, and pray. Or maybe he sang a lot of hymns, too, like uh, Peter did when you read the book of Acts. 
There aren't many verbs available to you from a prison cell. But the joy of this text, Ephesians 1, is that from beginning to end, from first to last, from alpha to omega, as I noted earlier, and you can check me on this, who's doing all the verbs in Ephesians 1? It's It's not me. It's not you. It's the Lord. It's God. The ones that count. He does the verbs that save us. And he does these verbs from all eternity from before the slab of this world's foundation was laid. So by the time they get around to us in our time and place, they're already in a past and completed tense. It's all a done deal in Jesus, namely these verbs. Predestined, adopted, redeemed, atoned, all that stuff. It's all a done deal in Jesus, just as he said when he died on the cross. Remember what he said? It's finished. The salvation job is done. John 19. And if I may, based upon what Paul says here in Ephesians 1, it's finished before we can ever get started. So look at how Paul's sentence begins. And again, the verses that we just read, it's one long run-on sentence. If we gave this sentence to the English teacher, the high school English teacher, who is the high school English teacher in Elman Murdoch? Nolan? Mr. Hall? Or Miss Block? They'd flunk, they'd flunk Paul. Run-on sentence. Do it again. <laughs> okay? But it's all one run-on sentence. But notice how it begins. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and he's the one who has blessed us. Where? In the heavenly realms. And notice, not with just partial blessing, but with every spiritual blessing. And notice again, the kicker is in Christ. That is to say... In Christ, you who believe in him have everything before God the Father. You lack nothing. Nothing. And the key is in Christ. Now, if you're going to go before God the Father and say, look at me. Look at me. God the Father's going to say, I don't know who you are. But when you appear before God the Father and you say, look at me in Christ, come on in. So he's already done this. Before we even part our lips to bless God, I'm reading again from the sheet. He has already blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing there is. Before we can utter a predicate of prayer or sing a syllable of praise, everything's already ours in Christ. At least 10 times in these verses, Paul says in him or in Christ to remind us that that's where the action is and always will be in Christ. That's where we look for the verbs to be going on, not in ourselves. Our certainty of salvation is in not, not in ourselves, but in who? In Christ. And this is very, very important because when you're on your deathbed and Satan attacks you and your sinful flesh attacks you and the world attacks you, and if you look at yourself for salvation, you're going to despair. And this is why when somebody's on their deathbed, they call the pastor. And the pastor comes running. And what's he preaching? Who's he preaching? Christ. And people on their deathbed are relieved and say, thank you, pastor. Amen. And then lots of times if they're able, the pastor will give people who are dying what? The Lord's Supper. And sometimes for the last time in their life. Because once again, you have this objective promise in Christ that their sins are forgiven and they have eternal life. Notice again the distinction. In Christ, that's certain and sure. Are you picking this up? All right. So let me see. What, go ahead, Mike, please. What is the last rites then? I mean, do you, is, is 
there something that has to be done then? Or? Well, Roman Catholics speak of last rites in the sense of, in the, in the large context of seven sacraments. And so the, one of the last sacraments in the Roman Catholic system or teaching is giving people anointing with oil at the end of their life, uh, following what James says, okay, and praying, and maybe the Lord's Supper at the end. Now you asked, we don't talk last rites. We just simply say, when somebody's dying, we go to them and we preach the gospel. We preach the Lord Jesus Christ for their salvation. And if they're able, we'll give them communion. So for example, here's something that I'll say to people when they're dying. <clears throat> if they're still able to talk with me, I'll say, <clears throat> so you know what? You're going to fall asleep. I don't know when, but you're going to fall asleep. And then all of a sudden, you're going to be awakened. The Lord Jesus is going to say, wake up, sleepyhead. Time to get up. Just as soon as you fall asleep, boom, resurrection day. And I want you to trust before you die that Jesus died for all your sins. And you're going to go to heaven when you die. And people say, thank you, pastor. Thank you. You should see this in action. You should go with me. If they can still talk. You, it's, if, even if they can't talk, they can hear. Nurses will tell you that. They can still hear. So you, you always, and by the way, pastor's always playing golf. So you're usually with your loved one more than the pastor is, right? <laughs> so what do you do? Okay, when, you, when your loved one is on their deathbed, then you're constantly doing this, the same thing I do. You're, you're praying the Lord's Prayer with them. You're telling them the Lord Jesus died for you. All your sins are forgiven. We're going to see you in heaven. All Christians do that. It's wonderful. It's absolutely magnificent. Now, does that answer your question or concern? Well, it becomes, well, I'm saying it becomes mandatory. Oh, it's, it's, a matter, it's, a matter of, it's a matter of pastoral, high pastoral care or high Christian brother and sister care. Because these people need it. Because on your deathbed, you are going to be attacked by Satan. This is his one last chance to tear you away from Jesus. And he will try. He will try. So it's in the sense of we are going to help these people. That's the point. In the Roman Catholic Church, it's in the way of the law. Have to. In our case, it's we're just going to do it because these people need it. Yes, Michelle. So then, what happens with, like, say, somebody's in a car accident where they don't have somebody to say anything? Yeah, that's right, and that's a great question. Well, we're just going to commend those people to the Lord, and this is why. This is why it's very important to know the Word of God. To know about the Lord Jesus Christ. So if you're in a car accident, you're by yourself, and you get thrown from the vehicle, and nobody sees you until you're dead. Okay, you can remember. You can remember. And be. And I, I think I can confidently say this, Michelle. And this is based upon Matthew chapter 10. Now, Matthew 10, of course, is the context of the Lord sending his apostles out to preach. and uh, But it applies to other things as well. Namely... Don't worry about what you say in those situations because the Holy Spirit will give you the words to say. And I think in a situation like that, the Holy Spirit, based upon what you've learned all your life from the Word of God, even if you're alone, you will be able to say, depart from me, Satan. Get away. Because you've learned all your life how to battle Satan on your deathbed, even if you're alone. Yeah. Because that happens a lot. In the nursing home, some people don't have families. And the pastor's always playing golf <laughs> with Nick. <laughs> right, Brenda? Yeah, right. Anything else? Thank you. All right, let's continue with my ramblings then. So 
Uh, that third paragraph. So in Christ we're blessed. In him we're chosen. We're chosen in God's chosen son, Jesus the Christ. In Jesus we are destined for adoption as God's children. We're beloved in the beloved son, as Paul says in those verses. In Jesus we're redeemed by his blood. Our sins are forgiven in the lamb who was slain from the foundation of the world. That's revelation, by the way. It's all in Christ, not in ourselves. So brothers and sisters, that's the best news a sinner can possibly hear. In ourselves, and again, here's the distinction. In Christ, I've just given it to you. But if you say in ourselves, here's what you'll find. In ourselves, we're dead. Because in Ephesians 2, verse 1, and Ephesians 2, verse 3, Paul says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked and were by nature children of, and this would be implied, God's wrath, like the rest of mankind. In Romans 7, you remember, Paul wrote, I know that in me, in me, again, I'm, I'm pushing this hard. The, the biblical distinction is always either in Christ or in you or in me. And if you're going to base your salvation in you, it's going to be hellacious. In Christ, different story. I know that in me, that is in my flesh, there dwells no good thing. So nothing good comes from within us. From within, Jesus says, from the heart comes what? Murder, adultery, slander, gossip, theft, lies. And now my words now, everything that dehumanizes us or degrades our humanity. Jesus says this in Matthew 15. And so we won't be roaming around in ourselves looking for something salvageable. Not in our hearts, not in our heads, and certainly not in our feelings. Only in Christ. Now again, I'm, I'm a, so there's no misunderstanding. I'm talking about salvation. The certainty of salvation. Leave him, namely Jesus, out of the picture, and you've got nothing when it comes to salvation. So the whole sense of salvation collapses on itself. It's just you and your miserable life waiting to die if you think it's all in you. But listen, dear brothers and sisters, as Paul says in Ephesians 1, in Christ you were chosen by the Father, chosen before the foundations of the world. Before you were even a twinkle in your own biological father's eye, your father in heaven chose his son, and in him he chose you to be holy and blameless before him. Now, the text said that God did this so that we can be holy and blameless. That is also a gift. When you are in Christ through faith, you are holy. But if you look at yourself, you're not. So again, to just push the analogy, if you follow me on the golf course, and many of you in this room have golfed with me, maybe not all of you, but some of you have, and you know that uh, sometimes I lose my Christianity on the golf course. <laughs> so if you look at me, there's no certainty of salvation. But in Christ, that's a whole different ballgame. And so how am I holy before the Lord in me, myself? No, only through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So there's this sweet swap that Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians 5. Paul says that he, Jesus, who knew no sin, who knew no sin, never sinned. Hebrews tells us that Jesus never sinned. But he who knew no sin was made to be sin. That is to say, as he bore the sin of the world in his body, God the Father counted him as the sinner. Now don't misunderstand what I just said. The scripture clearly teaches that Jesus never sinned, and that's absolutely true. 
But when he bears the sin of the world in his body as the innocent one, God the Father says, I count you as the sinner. And what do we get in exchange? We get his holiness, his righteousness, and his perfection through faith in him. That's the sweet swap. That's the blessed exchange. That's 2 Corinthians 5. So I'm going to repeat this. How do you know if you're holy before God the Father? In yourself? No. In Christ? Yes. So when God the Father looks at you, Liam, he looks at you through the lens of his son, Jesus Christ, who died for you. Or let me put it to you this way. Paul says in Galatians 3, verse 27, that all of you who have been baptized have put on Christ. So you're all baptized here. So what you, you're wearing Christ like I'm wearing this brown jacket. So when God the Father looks at you, his baptized, who put on Christ in baptism, who does God the Father see? His perfect, holy son. And he treats you accordingly. In Christ. I hope I've made my point. You see how important this is? Okay, all right. Well, let's see here. Where am I at? Uh, chosen, right. Yeah, 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 yeah. He chose you to be holy and blameless outside of Christ. That is to say, we're in Adam. We are sinful, unholy, and guilty. That's our lot in Adam. And should you doubt that for a moment, all you need to do is take a quick look in the mirror of the law or the Ten Commandments. Just a commandment or two ought to show you those, or what you, those of what you fear, love, and trust above all things, how we misuse God's most holy name, the boredom with his word, the way we dishonor father and mother and authority, our loose regard for life, or even looser regard for sex and marriage, our petty thefts and lies, deceits, our restless, greedy hearts that always want more and more. That's 9 and 10, coveting. And that's how you are outside of Christ or in Adam. But in Christ you're holy. You're wrapped in his holiness. You are blameless in his obedience. The shame of your nakedness is clothed with the robe of Jesus' righteousness. I just quoted those passages earlier, the Galatians and the 2 Corinthians. That's how God sees you in Christ. In Jesus, you are holy. In Jesus, you are blameless in God's sight. So it's as though there were two of you, though there's really only one. There's you as you are in yourself or in Adam, a sinner. And then there's you as you are in Christ, namely a holy saint. In Christ, we are destined for adoption, the text says in Ephesians 1. This is our destiny. Everyone is looking for his or her destiny. Watch your friends. Watch television. Our destiny is in Christ. And we have a certain future in Christ. It's a future that even gives meaning to the present, including our present sufferings. The adoption papers have been filled out and filed. Signed, sealed, delivered. So you're in, adopted, a family member. God chose you. Not because you're so lovable and adoptable. As though God were looking for a pet Aussie doodle from the dog breeder. Like, oh, he's so cute. I think I'll take that one. No, as the text says, it's the good pleasure of his will to adopt wretched, damned sinners in Christ. So God does the outrageous and unthinkable. He adopts us while we were yet sinners, Romans 5. God doesn't say, and this is very important, God doesn't say, well, Tom, if you'll be good, I'll adopt you. Instead, God says, Tom, you're mine. I have adopted you. 
And so now live like my child because that's who you are. So God calls us his own children and he loves us to death in the Good Friday death of his beloved child Jesus who says to us, you call my father your father and say our father. Continuing with the verbs in Ephesians 1. So I just covered the adoption. He's adopted us. Now another verb from Ephesians. These are my ramblings. Redemption. So in Christ we have redemption. We are a purposed, purchased people. We are bought with a price. As Peter says, not with gold or silver, but with Christ's precious blood. So we are not, or you're not, a piece of merchandise sitting on a shelf. The currency is Christ's holy precious blood and his innocent suffering and death. So you have forgiveness, brothers and sisters. How? By the blood of Jesus. That's a redemptive river <laughs> that flows from the wounded side of your Savior to you in the word, the baptismal font, and the chalice of the Lord's Supper. And so literally, to quote Psalm 23, your cup does runneth over. Though our sins may be many and great, redemption's flood runs greater still, wider and deeper than the worst and deepest of sins. So if you are tempted to say, well, Jesus couldn't forgive me for that one, that's wrong. Absolutely wrong. You're in on a great mystery. The big secret. Namely, what's on God's mind. In Christ, the mystery of God's will, hidden for the ages, is revealed. Made known in the fullness of time. When God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. Galatians 4. So, the triune conspiracy, <laughs> I mean that in a tongue-in-cheek way. The triune conspiracy is now revealed to the world. Here it is. Here's what God's always been up to. Okay. <laughs> to bring together and to sum up all things in heaven and on earth in Christ. Literally, to recapitulate, that is to redo everything and bring it all to its final purpose in Christ. Sometimes we say it just doesn't add up. We look at this world in all its confusion, murders, earthquakes, senseless deaths and corruption, and it just doesn't add up. Can God make good out of a sin-filled, terrorized world? Can God make good out of your life, broken though it may be? The cancers, the divorces, the broken families, the failures? It just doesn't add up to much of a victorious life, does it? But listen, from the cross of Christ comes the resounding answer. Yes, it's finished. Because God was in Christ, recapitulating or redoing, if you will, and reconciling the world to himself. It all adds up in Christ. It all totals out. His assets exceed the world's liabilities. Pardon me for using the accountant way of talking, but I think this makes the point. I'm going to read it again. Our Lord's assets, that is to say, his death on the cross and his bloodshed, exceeds all the world's sin. Those arms that extended on the cross embraced all in his death. And that's good news for you, because if he died for all, he died for you. So in his humanity, Jesus embraces our humanity. He was baptized as a sinner among sinners. He was made sin for us. He's counted as the sinner for us all embodying the sin of the world even though he was completely sinless in himself and bearing all our sin he died our death he's the death of us all 
Paul says in 2 Corinthians, Christ died for all. Therefore, when was your death? When was your big death? According to that text. When Christ died on the cross. And so now what you, so, you know, if I have a heart attack, attack tonight, that, that death is like going to sleep. It's just, it's just a door. It's a door to open heaven, if you will, because of Christ's death. So lifted up in death on the cross, Jesus draws all to himself, as he says in John 12. And bearing the sin of the world on the cross, he answers and atones for every sin and every sinner in his crucified body. And in the darkness of his death, once and for all, the mystery of God's good and gracious will to save is made known. And thus our Bible memory verse, John 1, 29. I'm going to say one more thing about this because Christians, baptized Christians who don't take the time to come to church on a regular basis, who don't read the word of God at all at home, and who maybe rarely pray except to curse and then pray in reverse. These are people, I'm speaking in general to make my point. These are baptized Christians who when something bad happens in their life personally or somebody else's life, they get angry with God. And they say, why didn't God do anything? And then they hate God. That's a dangerous thing to do. Now, why am I saying this? Well, I'm saying this for, for a number of reasons. One, of course, is I'm thankful for many in this congregation who take advantage of the teaching of the word of God to hear it regularly, to learn from it, so that when things happen in their lives that just don't seem to add up, they can, go, they can remember from this text what the mystery of God's will is. You now know that God actually did do something for you. I mean, I'm not saying this very well, so have mercy on me. Generally speaking, the baptized Christians who do not come to church on a regular basis, don't read the word of God, don't rarely pray at all except maybe to curse. When something bad happens, they're always angry with God as if God never did anything. I'm here to tell you this is the most important thing that God ever did for anybody. Right here. When he took on our flesh, took on our sin, and its damnation. This is where God acted for us and for our salvation. This is his love. It's incredible. So if you encounter people like that and they say, Why didn't God do anything? You can say, He did. If you got a cross, hold it to their eyes. He did. And I want you to trust that. So, as we learned from Ephesians 5, before the foundation of the world, you've been chosen in Christ. He did do something before you ever did anything. Now, I'm, I'm, so I'm getting carried away. Five minute warning. Any questions? I have a comment about that. Please. We were, we were reading, I think I was reading Fox about that revival that's going on in Kentucky. Yeah. And they interviewed a gal who's a senior in college, and she said that she cursed God because her great grandmother, who she really loved, died. This happens all the time. Yep. Years old or whatever. So she's cursing God. And they go through, I don't know how many pages of stuff. And I'm reading through this, I'm going. Now she found out that if she went to this place and they were singing Kumbaya on stage and everything was cool and everybody was, you know, rocking and rolling, wherever, and now everything's cool. But the thing I couldn't understand is there was never, ever, and I've read it a couple of times, a mention of Christ. And that really was like, well, what, what do you, what changed you then, you know? Singing, dancing, praying, I don't know. It just kind of confused me. But that was an actual person that said, I blame God for this. Yeah, that happens a lot. Um, and and you, you've probably all experienced that in your life. Maybe you personally have, have done that. Now, again, I said that that's a dicey game to play, and I'll finish with this thought. 
Uh, if you've read Job in the Old Testament, remember what happened to Job. The devil went before God and said, hey, this Job fella, he's had, he's had his life on easy street. It's easy for him to believe in you. And God says, oh yeah? I'm paraphrasing. Do what you want with Job, but don't kill him. And the devil did. In one storm, oh, he lost all of his family. All of his children were all killed in like a tornado, if you will, all at once. He lost all of his property in one day. Okay? And what did he do? What did Job do? He worshipped God. Then to make the long story short, Job continues to suffer, continues to suffer, continues to suffer, until finally his wife comes up to him and says what? Curse God. Yeah, that's right. Why don't you curse God and die? And finally then, he doesn't take that advice, but he does kind of argue with God a little bit. And then God, I'm going to paraphrase, and I am going to quit after this. God comes before Job and he says, all right, put on your pants, tighten your belt. Where were you, little man, when I created the world? Where were you? Oh, you weren't there, were you? Where were you when I set the seas and all their boundaries when I did all? Oh, you weren't there, were you? What's God's point? You're not God. I am. Now, it isn't to, to do this or this, but God's doing this with Job to say, I'm the creator, I'm the redeemer, and I love you, trust me. And Job does. Okay, and that's the final thing I want to say on that. So I've got more ramblings I'll bring uh, next week. We've got to pray the Lord's Prayer and get out of here. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be.